Hi, I'm Vanessa Anderson. And I'm Stephanie Cooley. It's time to give ourselves a moment to be real, to express all of motherhood. Mothering is beautiful. It's wonderful. And you know what? It's fucked up too. Come hang out with us. We're the real motherfuckers. Hello, motherfuckers. Welcome to Real Motherfuckers, where we talk about all aspects of of being a mother and all the realities of being a mother. Yes. Um, today, well, I'm Stephanie. Let's get that. Yeah, out and I'm of the Vanessa way. too. Yep. <laughs> um, so today, with our guest, I've known her for about 20 years. Veronica and I met later in college. Uh, we we grew close when we interned and lived in Washington D.C. And in Washington D.C., we were broke as fuck because we interned for free. Oh, for free intern. That whole town runs on free interns. Oh yeah. Um, and we also had impeccable taste buds because we hardly ate much good food, and we sustained ourselves on Jägermeister. Oh my, pretty God. much. Got your calories in. Okay, but holy crap, we've grown. We've grown so much. And the reason why I wanted to have Veronica on today is because she has one storied life. Like, it is crazy how many different interesting things she's done. She is um, a mother, first of all. Uh, and But she became a mother in a very unconventional way. Okay. The second thing I wanted to have her come on is just talk about her job. She is a district attorney in Tompkins County, which is in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, she deals with some of the most scary and disturbing and crazy cases, specifically dealing with uh, abuse and child abuse. And you know, I just kind of want to get her thoughts on how she sees the world as an attorney and a, as a mother. Um, and lastly, I wanted Veronica to talk about something that I want to talk about more, more in depth in another episode too, but I would love to start that conversation here is to talk about, uh, sobriety and, you know, you're a lawyer and lawyers aren't sober. No, (laughs) No. and you know, I think we also live in this like mom culture of like this mommy, like wine culture and, you know, W-I-N-E to and slash W-H-I-N-E wine culture of like. We drink to like drink our sorrows away with, you know, losing ourselves with, when we had kids kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I <laughs> wanted to end my intro with one little fast fact about Veronica. <laughs> she uh, also is uh, like an expert at roller skating. What? She goes on ramps and she, I don't think you do it anymore, but you, she used to do roller derby. Dude, I'm going to be looking you up if you're on YouTube. I don't play roller derby anymore, but I did play it for years. And then during COVID started roller skating at parks. Wow. Are there videos of you doing this? I have a few. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Maybe we'll share that in some promo. Doing some badass girl stuff. I love it. (laughs) Well, thank you for being here today, Veronica. I really appreciate it. Um, and so I guess let's get started on your baking, baby making, not, I guess, baking too, baby yeah. making story. Uh, we live in a world where there's so many ways to create a family now. Um, can you tell us how you became a mom? Well, yes, I can. Um, so I would, 
I kind of want to preface it with growing up um, and in my early 20s, I never wanted to be a mom. And I, <laughs> and it wasn't because I didn't want kids. It was because I had a childhood that was, let's say, less than desirable. And I didn't think, I didn't want to repeat that. So uh, in my early 20s and really mostly through my 20s, I was like, I'm not having children. No, no, no. Um, and I met someone at the end of my 20s um, and we ended up getting married about four or five years into our relationship. So uh, what I was like 29, I think, um, when I met her and probably about six years in. So after we got married, we sort of like thought the next step would be having kids. And we, when we met, we both felt like we didn't want to have kids. And so we sort of were on the same page. And then suddenly we were on the same page again with, you know, maybe we do want to, maybe we, you know, don't, it started off with a conversation of like, I don't want to be, you know, really old and regret not having that experience. And so, you know, we had a pretty stable life and we'd been together a long time and we worked really well together, really good team. And so we decided to look into it and we had, so we were in a same sex relationship and we had one couple friend that had had well, we know several, we did know several other people that had had kids, but, um, that, are uh, same sex. Friends that were same sex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of our closer friends had just had a baby. So of our like friends that were couples, only one of them had a child at this time. This was around the time I was like 34. So 2015, 2016. And, um, there's all these different ways to do it. Um, but we hadn't really explored it until then. And, you know, some options are, you know, the, the couple friends that the couple that was our friends, um, they did, they had a donor that they knew and they sort of did it like, um, the donor just gave them sperm and they did the insemination themselves. Um, and we kind of considered all the different options. You know, there's also like, you can pick a donor, you can go to a, a clinic and get inseminated that way. Um, you could have a surrogate if you wanted. Um, but one of the things I wanted was I wanted to carry, I wanted to know what it was like to be pregnant. And um my wife at the time did not, she had no desire to do that. So it was pretty easy decision who was going to do that. But I did not have any desire to, um, continue my, my, uh, I don't know, my genetics. Oh, so, and I, you know, at the time, um, I felt much more, I felt much more comfortable with going with, um, her genetics and not mine. 
Wow. So we kind of came up with this idea and we were like, I wonder if that's even possible. Um, and at the time there was this one fertility clinic that we knew of that, um, we heard really good things about. And, um, we went and had an appointment there and we found out that it is an option through what's called reciprocal IVF. So what they do basically is, or what we did was, um, my wife at the time, she basically, they harvested her eggs. So she went through this like series of, um, injections with hormones to kind of, they have to like get the eggs ready to be extracted. And it's like something like three or four weeks of that. And then they take the eggs out and then they, um, put the eggs in my uterus after that, but they had to also get my uterus ready for that. So I had to go through a series of hormone treatment as well and injections over many weeks. Um, I had to give myself injections. Um, she had to give me injections and it was like, it was a long process, a very long, um, very long process. And an emotion, I'm assuming emotions are part of that emotional turmoil of the stress of doing this and yeah. the money invested. And also you're literally injecting yourself with hormones. Yeah. Two women injecting themselves with hormones. <laughs> Holy shit. But dude, there's a the bonus fat. There were a lot of tears. Yeah, yeah. And you guys are doing it together. It's, mm -hmm. you know, when you're not in a same sex couple, it's one person carries all carrying the weight, all the weight for it. So yeah. kind of cool that you shared that and it's something that, you know, you also get, got to choose like who gets to carry it. Like, hell yeah, that's so cool. Like, you know, yeah. I'm in a hetero relationship and the choice is already made, but in your situation, you're like, you know, rock, paper, scissors or whatever yeah. is in your heart, which is awesome. But yeah. How long, how long did it take you to to go through that process until you got pregnant? A couple of months. So it started um like in early June and by the end of July, this was in 2016, by the end of July um I believe at the end of the July I found out I was pregnant. So um, Who is Who's who's the the donor, the dad or the bio dad? Bio dad. Um, donor I we haven't really yeah. all this. There's, I don't know. We've settled on a term. Uh, yeah. But so we got sperm from a sperm bank. And what we did was we went in search of um, sperm from someone that had a similar, uh, as similar a background to me as we could find. So I'm half Filipino and my mom was born and raised in Arkansas. She's like as white as they come and she, but she has like German Irish background, uh, like in her ancestry. And so we basically, after looking and looking and looking, we found one, <laughs> one donor what? that really, really fit, fit what we were looking for pretty perfectly. And he's half Filipino. He, had his like white side was like Scottish German, which was very close. And we also really loved his profile. So what they do is they fill out a bunch, they do like a questionnaire so you can get to know them um, and what kind of person they are. And they only shared pictures of him as a child. And the really eerie part about the not eerie, but like kind of just like 
it felt meant to be was that his childhood pictures look we looked like we could have been siblings um we looked very much alike and uh down to like one of his childhood pictures was him uh as like a like adolescent you know those awkward like 10 11 12 uh years yeah. you're like 10 11 12 and you're like all lanky and you haven't really built in your body yeah nothing fits right that's <laughs> right. And I had this picture of myself because I played basketball in my basketball jersey with a basketball like here in my arm. And, you know, I'm standing and the pictures like with the basketball. He had one that was exactly the same. Um, Whoa. Wow. I was just like, what? <laughs> so. A version of you, literally. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was pretty interesting. So. We ended up going with him as a donor um, and they, they can pick various options like to be notified or not be notified, right? Uh, what happens. And I believe he, he picked to be, he picked being anonymous. So, um, so that's how we picked the donor and um, they, uh, I was inseminated. Well, they did the insemination in a lab, right? And then they, um, deposited the the fertilized egg into my uterus and they actually did two just because we were like it was so expensive that we had to kind of take a gamble of like if we do one you know there's less chance it'll take but if we do two there's a little more chance but then there's also a chance of twins wow um, but we question. ended up getting what i have a question because i mean i didn't have to go through the process but for someone who's thinking about doing this when because they freeze the the sperm right and yeah and do they they put the eggs from your partner in that with that sperm beforehand right so they're like ready to go yeah that's the way yep. that's what's put in you yes i not to be graphic but i kind of want to be for someone who's wondering what this feels like is when it's happening to you is it kind of like an exam like when women go to their annual exam to the gynecologist yeah. Like yeah, they so, do a biopsy, is it that kind of feeling when it's happening or is it more intense? I don't even think I felt it happen. Like I was like on, um, I was laying down, right? So it's, it's almost like an OBGYN exam okay. and um, they have this really long, it's not a needle, but it looks very much like, it's just like um, a delivery device that's really thin. That's um, almost as thin as a needle and they just insert that. And then I think they also, at the same time, if I remember correctly, they had a, um, like a little camera to see where they were. Um, and then they just, once they get where they need to go, they sort of push it out and then leave mm -hmm. it there. And then the rest is up to the body, right. To like, so, so the idea being that what, so it's, it's, they're frozen, but do they defrost them before they have, this is like yeah. the part. Yeah. So, those so do they have to be and how are they like, they're already moving before. Yeah. You know? I don't actually think they froze them before we did this. So it was really, it was really tight on timing. So we knew what sperm we had to pick. We had to have it shipped from California to this well, um, fertility clinic. We had to have it shipped like, you know, within a certain p number of days. Um, 
of the I'm sorry, shipped from the time he ejaculated into a tube? No, you know, that's a good question. Is I don't I don't think so. Like I think or, or I guess like from the time the storage or and then taking it out of storage and then just I think it. so, yeah. And so wow. that makes me think that maybe it was frozen and then they can't defrost it like unless it's within a certain time of it being used, yeah, it's right? Like breastfeeding and, and like defrosting breast milk in the Yeah, you gotta do it like just in that time period. It's just a small amount so of this, time. This sperm is like transcontinental jet setting yeah. sperm already. Like already kicking <laughs> ass across the country. Before yeah. it even gets to you. Wow. Okay. This is so interesting to me because I, I don't like to me. Yeah, I know the process, but like those tiny details, mm -hmm. I've never been through yeah. it. Thanks for sharing that they're intimate ones. When people do the process, I feel sensitive to asking these details. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, you since you're here, right. I'm like, I'll go for it. See if she's willing to answer. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> so you got pregnant and you like, was it, it's so cool to think about like someone else's egg, someone else's sperm is in your body and it's, it's genetically not you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, That's a trip. It's and like, like sci-fi shit that you wouldn't have thought of in the nineties, you know? I just feel like it's such a cool way to, to, to do it as a same sex female, you know, female, same sex, um, partnership because you both have skin in the game. Yeah. 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 And I think that's the thing we really, really, I loved about it and still really love about it. Um, mm -hmm. is that like, there is a direct, you know, biological connection, um, to him, to our son through both of us. And, you know, we've recently had to start answering some questions, right. About like, who he, he's been really curious about like where he gets his DNA and where, like, how did he get these characteristics? And it's, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to answer. Um, cause he's looking for ways to connect to both of us. Um, and I think we set it up really, really, um, perfectly for him to have that connection to both of us. Wow. That's cool. That, 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 I, it would blow, blow my, it blew my mind to be pregnant, but I think the, what you, your pregnancy, that would have taken it to another level for me. Well, I think that there's cool. something to be said about the intentionality of making a baby this way. Yeah. You know, there, like I like we said, there's so many ways to make a family and to make a baby. And a lot of times they come by surprise and yeah. a lot of times, you know, sometimes they come very intentional and very you have to think through this and go through every step and process. And, yeah. Yeah. um, it makes me appreciate too, like just how amazing our bodies are that, yeah. you know, we can do this kind of stuff and, yeah. you know, science yeah. and technology allowing yeah, families cool. to different families to be made. Yeah. It's really quite amazing because, you know, one of the things I was, a, I was honestly afraid of, um, in not it and like my baby not being my DNA was like then I won't I won't be connected to this to this you know little human but the process of carrying and growing this like baby inside of you you both know is like so profound and the 
biological connection between like baby and mother is so strong between me and my son that it, it's just really special. It's really special yeah. that I get that um, when it wasn't, you know, he's not from my DNA. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's a true. And I always wonder if there's like a slither of your DNA, no matter what, in your child because you carried him. You know, like slipping mm-hmm. in, like maybe yeah. there's like a five to ten percent yeah. little yeah. DNA in there because the blood permeation mix. is that a word? Permeation. I'm, it permeated. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's like making eggs after you made something else and there's still a little bit of egg in there. You know what I mean? Like, where do you get it? Residual, residualness. Residual stuff. That's yeah. it. Yeah. No, I think that's sweet. So, um, okay, so we have a lot of shit to cover. Okay, yeah. let's move on to the next topic. I know this is a weird segue, but we're just going to have to freaking do it. Um, so you're a lawyer. Um, I'm a lawyer. Yes. You're a lawyer. You've worked in the public sector or you work in the public sector right now. You've worked private sector. You've been a law professor. Um, I was on vacation with you not that long ago. And you told me about some cases that you've, you've worked on and Mm -hmm. I came back and it sat with me. And I remember thinking like, holy crap, Veronica has to deal with this so intensely and you have to get to know your clients very well. You have to know them inside and out, know their story, know every detail of their story. And sometimes I'm shocked the fact that you can still be a mother and hold a smile in front of your child's face and like, let them know that there is a world that is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us maybe about like, what you specialize in and the sort of cases that you deal with. Yeah. So, um, I am, uh, I work for the district attorney's office in Tompkins County and I am an assistant district attorney, also known as a prosecutor. So I practice only in criminal law. Um, and just, um, for purposes of being really accurate, um, I don't actually have clients in my job. Um, my, my responsibility is like, I'm ethically bound to quote unquote, seek justice. And so that is a very broad, very broad guideline. And that does involve, um, getting to know and working with people that are harmed by crimes, um, victims of crimes. Um, and I, I take on a lot of cases, me and one other person in my office, we handle all of the sex offenses, child sex offenses, and like child abuse cases. Um, and I have a handful of like domestic violence cases. Um, and, uh, yeah, I have to, I have to, if a case goes to trial, I have to really know all of the details about that. And it ends up where I get to know the person I'm working with the most, really. I mean, I work with most, I work with all the people involved in a case, right? Officers, um, medical, like doctors, nurses, um, forensic scientists. Uh, but the person that I really work with the most is the victim of the crime. Um, and so, yeah, I do get to know them quite well. And that's kind of the goal because these cases are not 
they're not easy if you can imagine for them to talk about in front of you know a a, a jury of 12 people that they've never seen before and in front of the offender um so it's important that i have a good uh, relationship with them where they trust me and we can do it together okay so can you tell us about a case that has stuck out to you and has maybe changed or yeah changed the way you see your job life motherhood i know this is such a broad question but i just kind of want to get a sense of like what you go through hmm. so um two cases come to mind and they are also the two um more high high profile cases that I've done felony trials that I've done um and they were both sex offenses uh one was a rape um and uh it was you know one of the things I've learned in doing this work is that a lot of times sex offenses um, most of the time they take place between people that know each other already. Um, and so this was a case where, um, it was a group of three friends. They were hanging out. Um, they were drinking. They'd gone back to, um, the victim's apartment and continued to drink. And then one of the friends, so there was two girls and a guy. One of the friends decided to leave and go home. And then, <clears throat> Uh, the victim and the, the male friend continued to drink a little bit. And, um, at some point the, uh, the victim got a phone call. So she left her apartment and she started to get these text messages that were very much like from the guy in her apartment that were like coming on to her, uh, at this point that <laughs> they've had a lot to drink and, um, she kept saying, no, I'm not interested in, in text, right? So this is all in text messages. Um, she had to go to the bathroom. So she ended up going back to her house to do that. And when she came out, he um, kind of blocked her way out of the apartment and um, is a, was a much bigger guy than she is, like much bigger build. Um, and sh she ended up being kind of pushed on the bed and he raped her. Um, she called her friend while it was happening, uh, was trying to text people to get help. And there was surveillance, right. That corroborated her entire story of like going to the apartment and then her leaving and then coming back and then him leaving the apartment. Um, and so we did a trial in a case and, um, there was a lot. So what goes into that is a lot of prep, like a lot of preparing to tell this very vulnerable, um, oftentimes embarrassing story in front of people, in front of an entire courtroom of people that you don't know. Um, but uh, the trial was successful and that person was convicted. So that was, that keeps, stays in my mind because that was the first, um, that was the first case I'd ever had. And um, that got, that went to first felony sex events that I've had that went to trial. 
And I formed a really strong bond with the victim in this case. Uh, and I, you know, I'm still friends with her today. Our children go to the same school. And um, did she have a kid I, at the time? She did. She was a mother. She was a mother. Yeah. She had a child at the time. He was not, he was with his father that night that it had happened. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of it is just connecting and supporting. Um, it's a lot of my job, especially in these types of cases. And um, she, like, she struggled a lot um, in being able to even talk about it. And so the, this is one of the things that sticks with me is how much work she and I had to put into this to get her to a place of being okay with saying the words that we needed her to say out loud in a trial in front of him. Mm. Um, and she did it. She did it. And she, um, you know, she didn't freeze up and she was strong and brave and ended up being, you know, a success in terms of, I guess, trials. Um, doesn't, it doesn't solve things, right. It doesn't like make her life better, but it's a form of validation for her in a lot of ways. Um, do a lot of yep. cases not go to trial because what, I mean, yeah, we, we had spoken to a, a, a victim who talked about how it's just like, a lot of victims choose not to say anything because they know the whole process is awful to, to go and try to seek justice. Yeah. Most of the cases that happens. Um, and it is, yeah, it is not an easy, it is not an easy path to, um, to see through, see a case through to the end. Um, you know, our justice system is one that is very protective of our rights. I mean, that's what our country was founded on in a lot of ways is the protection of our um, basic fundamental rights. And the way that that pans out a lot of times is um, the burden of proving cases on me, right, as the prosecutor. Um, but it also requires like a certain, it requires victims of crimes to multiple times, not just at a trial to, um, relive this trauma that they experienced like multiple times because of the way the, the criminal justice system is set up and the, the steps that you have to go through. There's a number of different hearings you have to get to, to even set it up so that it's trial ready. And so it ends up being that they have to like talk about it and relive it every single time. You know, we have to be in court every single time I have to meet with them. And that's really do with, hard. Um, do you deal with people who you're in the middle of it and then they just drop out because they can't handle like, yep. you know, they want to deal yep. with it. Mm -hmm. We would like to thank our sponsor, Avo Aesthetics Med Spa. Vanessa has been a patient for a while and have you seen her face? This 40-year-old doesn't look a day over 35. When you walk into their spa, it's beautiful, relaxing, and inviting. Make sure to check out the owner, Melissa Starica's cool vintage furniture while you're there. 
She has the medical knowledge, but what makes this spot so unique is that she's dealt with skin issues herself. Melissa listens to your concerns, and it's why she has longtime clients who keep coming back to her to boost their self-esteem. Find out more at avomedspa.com. Yeah. So could you give advice to anyone who, God forbid this happens to, to make it, um, I, I don't even want to use the word successful, but I guess I am, to enable to make their justice successful, what steps would be, if you had like a couple steps to say, hey, if this happens to you, immediately do this, this, and this. That way we have the evidence for you to be protected. If you know what I mean? Like, I would want to know that if, if that happened to me, obviously I'd call 911, but is there like, you know, anything else that would be helpful in their case to seek yeah. justice? Is there any advice you can give? Um, I mean, some of the most important evidence I find in these cases is that initial contact with law enforcement. So a 911 call going to make a report at a police station. <clears throat> and then the immediate um, visit to the emergency room for a, um, a sane exam, a sex offense forensic exam, um, which can preserve a lot of evidence. Uh, and, you know, if we don't have that, it makes the case much harder. Um, that's why cases that you don't report until years later, and for very good reason, people don't report things right away. It just makes it more difficult. Um, so those two things are really, really important um, because it, it's, it, it provides evidence in a lot of different ways, not just forensic evidence, DNA evidence, potentially like sperm evidence but also like a consistency throughout of this person's story that you can see and that lends to their credibility in a case because these cases come down to a he said she said ultimately that it's a it's no one else is in a room when this happens most often except the two people right yeah so that extra sort of outside evidence is really important wow you said there was a second case that stuck out to you yeah, so there is a second case. Um, this was my, ended up being my second uh, felony jury trial. And uh, it came to me in March of 2021. Um, and uh, it was probably the most disturbing, hardest case um, emotionally that I've had to do. So, um, what it was a sex offense, um, slash assault. And what happened was, um, the victim in the case had been in a relationship with, um, this man for probably, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe two years, roughly. And, um, she's a mother. She had, um, adult children at the time and she had, she'd been dating him for kind of on and off over that like year and a half. Like, I think they broke up once and then got back together. 
Um, but they would meet at hotels because she didn't want to bring him home to where her kids were. So her kids happened to be living with her at the time. So she would, they would meet at a, a hotel. They would get a hotel room. They would often get the same one. And um, he uh, didn't want to bring her to his place because he told her that he had roommates. Um, and so they wanted to have, you know, alone time. So they would meet at this hotel. And this particular night, um, uh, well, I guess what I should add to this is it, it came out in the case that there was a lot of um, controlling behavior and some DV that had started to take place a few months before this. And when I say DV, I mean domestic violence. So he would be, he, he was exhibiting more controlling behavior, like if she didn't pick up her phone when he called, he would get really pissed off and um, like he would um, be really angry at her the next time he saw her. So that happened this day. Um, she was like helping, uh, it was something about her, she was moving or she was helping her child, her kid, her adult child move. So she was sort of busy around the time he called and she didn't pick up right away. And, um, he like called and texted. And I think, you know, minutes later she called him back and he was like, you better pick up the phone when I call you. And by this time, it'd been a couple of years and there was a certain level of control and intimidation that she felt, um, from him. Um, but she also cared about him. You know, like these two people cared about each other. And that was also something that came out in this case, even though it was uh, a really difficult case. So they ended up meeting up that night. Um, they had a, an argument um, pretty much right away when she got there. Um, uh, like there was some like, you know, they hugged each other and they were glad to see each other. And then, you know, they started to have a fight over something that was on TV and, um, then at some point, one of them says like, well, is this what we came here to do? We didn't come here to fight. Um, so she would bring lingerie. So she, he was like, why don't you go put, put on your lingerie? And so she did and came back out and they started to have, um, sexual contact with each other. Um, and what happened was when they were uh, kind of on the bed, she had turned around so she wasn't facing him and, uh, she thought they were just going to have intercourse. And instead of that, she felt what she described as like the most excruciating pain she's ever felt in her life. And she thought that he had, um, like with a lot of force shoved something up into her anus and, um, she didn't know what she didn't know what was happening. She tried to get away. She fell on the ground and whatever it was that was inside of her was still there. And eventually, um, he, it, eventually she realized that it was his hand. Actually, she didn't know at the time, but we realized that eventually that it was his hand that had, he had forcefully, uh, he had forced fisted her and, uh, when he pulled his hand out, he wiped blood on her face and said, that's what you get for, I don't know what, but he was angry about something. I can't, oh I can't. And so, yeah. It's so among people who were supposed to care for each other and yeah, yeah well, obviously they had a, 
a history. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So she's very injured and she's also very afraid at this point. Um, and you know, part of the, a lot of the evidence we have, right. Is she, at some point she managed to get up off the floor and go to the bathroom and um, she just described like how much pain she was in when she sat down on the toilet, sort of felt like she needed to like, like she felt like blood was coming out of her um, yeah. and it was. And then she like put her clothes on. She managed to get her clothes on. She had these like leggings on and sat on the bed and was just trying to like keep him calm. And um, he had left, he left the room at one point. And she tried to pick up the phone to call the front desk, but he walked back in before she could say anything. So she kind of left it off the hook in hopes that like, maybe if it was off the hook, it would alert someone. And then he kind of saw what she was doing and he walked over to put the phone back on the receiver. And at that point she ran out of the hotel room and she ran across the street to a motel that was across the street and bang was banging on the office door, broke the window woke up the people inside and they called 911 for her. And so from that point on, what we have is what we had was evidence of, you know, most of the officers here have body camera. So we had the body camera of the officer that arrived of her condition at that time. Um, the 911 call, we could hear her in the background, you know, sobbing, crying, um, afraid to say who or what happened to her. Um, and uh, the officers were able to collect, um, and take pictures of the blood that was in the hotel room because he ended up leaving right away. So I had blood from the bed sheets and she sat on the bed, pictures of the blood on the toilet seat. Um, yeah. So, uh, you were able to get right away. What? You were able to get evidence right away. It seems like yeah, because she yeah, called. and she she called and she went straight to the hospital and had her um, the sex assault kit done. God, how do yeah. you, I mean, how is that possible? That's, I mean, he must have just been so. I mean, that's like punching, but how do you? I, I don't even know how that yeah. really physically is possible. Like honestly, that poor woman. I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And you too. I mean, this is, you have to endure some crazy ass shit in your job. Like you've got to see stuff. I mean, did yeah. you know this was going to be the way it was? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that. Ooh. Like you have to watch crime shows. You live that shit. Like it's crazy to me that you are working in this. It's like, and I'm going to lunch. You yeah. Know? How the hell do you do that? it takes a lot right like it took it took a lot out of me and her too like there was like i can't you can't even imagine how many medical records there were that we had to go through um we had to have every all the doctors testify and i'll tell you i'll say this one thing one more thing about the case um to give it give you some perspective so we had um a um oh gosh we had the doctor that repaired her sphincter muscle testify mm, and okay. his testimony part of his testimony that i thought was really powerful was that he had only seen one other case in his career 
that looks like that was as um, uh, as serious and um, had as much damage as she did. And it was a kind of a freak accident. He saw it in his residency when he was in California. And it was a, um, a person that was on a jet ski who had fallen off the back of a jet ski. And there's this like really forceful stream of water that um, shoots out of the bottom of a jet ski. And it just so happened the person that fell off that water hit right in that person's anus and um, tore his sphincter muscle, or I, I don't know, actually know if it was a boy or a girl, but caused damage to that person's sphincter muscle. And if you can imagine the kind of force that comes out of a motor of a jet ski, um, that's the comparable force uh, with which he had to have used to to cause the damage that he did. She uh, she had to have a colostomy bag for some time because she was incontinent. Um, and months and months of PT to regain, um, what she could in terms of function of her sphincter muscles. Damn. Yeah. That, that's intense. And I can imagine this man probably had history before this. Maybe this was finally the one that got him. It's people that are that fucked up to do something like that to someone has trails of shit somewhere else so um, hopefully he's somewhere and not around anyone that is please tell me she's doing better today she is she is doing better today um i check in on her every now and again um and she's doing okay you know i mean she was she was Ultimately, like the closure, what's what I think is hard about a trial is like you just want like you just want closure, you want it to be done. Mm-hmm. And what is really hard is that like once the trial's done, like that's when you start to heal. And trials can take a year, a year and a half, two years from the time of the incident. And so you've just been this like open wound for that whole time. And once it's done, you can finally like focus on healing. Um, and so, yes, she's doing okay now. Um, and I still talk to her. Do you have to have time to heal after these? You know, I do. I didn't realize it at the time, but what I know now is that I, I really have to take some time off after these big cases because there's always so much work that it seems like you can't, right? As soon as the trial's done, you put all these other cases on hold. You've got to like figure out where your other cases are. Um, but you get so intensely involved in a case when you have a trial. Um, but that's the only thing you can think about like the only thing and it stays for at least I mean the first trial I had that lasted for weeks after um and you know it's a it's a constant um learning experience for me to figure out what I can do for myself to stay balanced and healthy and take care of myself um part of that was not drinking anymore. Part of that is I exercise a lot, like, like, like 
I'm addicted to it in a lot of ways. Um, a little replacement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have very close relationships with my coworkers. We have a lot of dark humor because that's one of the outlets we have is we can go to nice. each other and just like, you know, complain and make jokes. And I find a lot of laughter at work, surprisingly, because like we deal with this stuff every day. Like there's no other way I think we could cope um, with it. Totally. And like, you have a job where it's hard to go home and home be home. It's like, I'm sure you take work with you wherever you go, especially when you get home. I mean, have you, have you been able to compartmentalize that when you're with your son? Yeah. That was my next question was you, it's tough emotions, right? You give, you've given your whole self to some buddy else and now you got to give your whole self again at home how does that work yeah (laughs) well I'm not sure it works very well but yeah so I um it's really hard when I'm in the middle of a trial to leave that at work um like, I don't know if you get, if either of you have ever like studied really hard for an exam and like so hard that you have dreams about it. Cause it's like, it's, that's just the only thing that's in your brain. Um, that's how it is like times, uh, 100 when I'm in the middle of a trial or getting ready for a trial. But, um, I have found, and it's been a learning process that like, I'm actually much better at my job when I, I I am better at compartmentalizing it and saying like, okay, I've done as much as I can do right now. It's going to be there when I get back. Now is the time I have to go home and like, just not think about it. And I've gotten better at it over time. Um, the first time I tried it, I think it was like a weekend. I had my son before a trial started and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But I just prepared and I did everything I needed to do in advance. And I took the weekend off and I came back really like quite refreshed. Um, And it was really, it was really good uh, to kind of give myself a break. You know, I'm still like a little more anxious and a little more like on edge and maybe a little more snippy with my son, but I, I'm working on being more present and, um, being sober actually has helped me quite a lot in, in doing yeah. that. Let's talk about that because I don't know any lawyers that are sober except like you. So, <laughs> you know, Tell- there, there are some of us that exist, although I would be interested in knowing what the statistics are because I don't think there's a lot. I mean, like, I was also looking at the statistics too about lawyers. There's just like an incredibly, no surprise, incredibly high depression and anxiety rate and an incredibly high, what, it was like one out of three uh, lawyers in a study saying that they have problem drinking. Yep. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I think it was yeah. like published in the New York Times, like one in three have a problem. Yeah, when I started law school, one of the first things they did was they gathered all of the first years in a big room and they gave us these this like orientation. And as a part of the orientation was like a whole substance abuse addiction section of like, just so you know, this is going to be a problem potentially. So be aware of it now. 
like it didn't stop me from or anyone from drinking um excessive amounts in law school but they tell you about it because they know because it is a problem um so i have been sober almost 11 months now and um it's been quite a journey so i'm 41 i turned 41 last month and i started my drinking career very early as a teenager um first time i got drunk was like i don't know 12 or 13 probably oh, um uh-huh. at a friend's house drinking captain morgan's rum <laughs> wow <laughs> from her parents uh, liquor cabinet yeah. um and you know i drank uh i was a wild child through college i drank a lot in law school and to some extent it was like a, a badge of honor for me like i i had a high tolerance um i could like drink any of my guy friends under the table it was like yes it was a source of pride for me we, for a, we a lot of those we have drank a lot together yes and <laughs> I remember when you told me, I was like, I feel like a lot of the times when we were hanging out was, I was like, I think it always revolved around drinking. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, gosh, but this is such a cool time because I was also not involved myself in drinking anymore. And so I was excited for us to meet up again and hang out and realizing like, wait, we're still freaking fun yeah. and sober. Yeah. yeah. I was terrified to tell you. I like put it off and put it off. I was like, I'm just not gonna tell her. I'm just not gonna tell her. Yeah. Like that's so crazy. I wonder what where the fear comes of that, you know? I mean Well I think it was a lot of it is uh, we our relationship started through drinking. Yeah. Right. Oh like yeah, yeah. your foundation. Yeah. We we drank heavily in DC. We we joked about how um, we had a roommate who drank a little bit more than us, and she <laughs> she she thought she could she could trick us. She drank our alcohol that was in the freezer and then replaced it with water, thinking that we wouldn't that we would notice that, <laughs> notice that she drank all of our alcohol. So it was too much alcohol all around uh, us. That was all. I mean, that's how we had fun. That's how we let loose. That's how like that's just what we did. Well, yeah. you guys throwing in different directions. Yeah, so yeah. it's cool that you meet you met each other in a different capacity. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. new chapters being written, right? It's really cool. So did you feel like you were using alcohol to like cope with the job? Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I um I used alcohol to cope with most things, um, yeah. to be honest. And uh that was, you know, the way that I rationalized it in my head was like, this is my this is my one thing. Like, this is what I get. I get to relax, have a drink, relax, and like finally feel like my body kind of let go. Mm. And, um, it was the only time that I felt relaxed every other time, you know, it was, I'm anxious, I'm nervous, I'm worried. I'm, you know, cause I'm not dealing with anything and I haven't been dealing with anything for years and for trials. Like, yeah, like I would, I wouldn't get like super drunk, but I, I was a daily drinker, daily, like every night drinker. Um, and I would m- 
moderate it a lot during trial time. Uh, and then once the trial was done, it was like game on, you know? Um, it's a celebration, right? Like if you win the yeah. trial, it's like, let's get yeah. fuck faced. We won. Let's cut loose. It's a celebration. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also how I connected with a lot of my coworkers. And um, it was just all very scary because I felt like I was going to lose, you know, the people that I cared about and like, what would we have if we didn't have alcohol? Right. Like I didn't even think about like this whole other world that's there. <laughs> Everything else in the world is there except alcohol. Um, Our society is so uh, drinking centric. Um, yeah. And I noticed that after I stopped and I was just thinking like, there's just like, you know, like I said, like the wine culture and like going out, to have brunch means you have to have brunch and mimosas or whenever a friend comes over, they are obligated to bring a bottle of something or, you know, it was like Mm -hmm. the association of like going out or having fun was with drinking. At least that's how it was for me for a while. Mm -hmm. And the fear of thinking that you're going to be different or boring is there. And then when you realize you're like, Oh shit, I'm, I'm actually way cooler without it. Mm-hmm. I definitely think we're way cooler without it, but I was not <laughs> sure about that before when I first started. <laughs> you want to be like the lame sober person, you know, but like, what the hell does that even mean too? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like when I connected with people when I was drinking, like that's how I connected with people. I was not able to really connect with people when I wasn't drinking. So I was like, people like me for my drunk self, not for my sober self. Like I'm like all wound up in a ball, all like tense and anxious when I'm not drinking, but when I'm drinking, like I'm all kinds of fun. Um, but turns out that comes back even if you're not drinking once you like stop drinking for a while. Mm -hmm. I think it's about who you're around, you know, like if you have this woman over here, Miss Steph, or personalities like her and it seems like you are the same way and I am we kind of come from the same channel it like brings it out in us like that silliness that dark humor that it comes out it's like a magnet when someone starts with something funny the other one chimes in the other one chimes in I just think alcohol accelerates that but when you're not drinking and someone starts it it, it's a natural magnification or a magnet to having that fun again it's Mm -hmm. the same feeling you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it is the same feeling and you know, I don't know if you experienced this uh, stuff when you stopped drinking, but like, there's a lot of like brain chemistry that has to kind of go back to normal. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the first few months of not drinking is like, you literally cannot feel joy, like because of your brain chemistry, your body is not producing um, enough to make you feel like things are fun or good. Um, it has to like learn to repro- learn to produce that stuff because you're not now feeding it to to yourself through alcohol. It's like I don't know if it's like serotonin. I forget. I looked it up yeah, once. That makes sense. Yeah, it's crazy. I didn't even thought of that. I mean, I didn't. I drank, but I didn't drink too much. Well, she has one kidney, so she's born with oh. one kidney. Well, that's probably smart. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Special occasions only, you know, that's kind of yeah, how we really, right. Yeah. What, what would you say to someone who is 
curious about wanting to cut back or just be sober? Um, what would I say? I would say nothing bad can come of it. Um, I think that honestly, in stopping drinking, only good things have come from it. Um, my relationships have gotten uh, stronger. I've gotten to know myself more. Um, I've learned to like uh, be attuned to myself and my body and others much more. Um, but I think in the beginning, it's very scary. And I would say like, find a community, whatever that is, find someone that's also not drinking. It makes it a lot easier to try it. Mm -hmm. For me, um, I was in therapy and my therapist suggested an AA meeting. So I worked up the courage to go to one and that community has been a huge source of support for me. Um, it's not for everyone, but there's also other options out there. Um, yeah. Are there like other non AA sober groups out there? There are, I'm not familiar really with them, but there definitely are other programs, right? Programs of sobriety programs out there. But what's most important is like, you don't try to do it alone because sobriety is about connection. I mean, life is about connection. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have that, you're just going to fall right back into all the reasons why you're still drinking. Um, and if you can find someone that you relate to, it's so powerful. Um, and one of the things that AA gives is like, you hear stories from other people in the rooms that you can relate to. And it's incredibly powerful mm. to know that like, oh, I'm not the only one that feels like, like I'm going to die today if I don't have a drink, or I'm not the only one that's done these shitty things when I was drinking. Um, mm -hmm. Because a lot of it is just like poor coping skills and yeah. um, you just have to relearn and it's hard. I think it's amazing that you did this at the age of 40 because I feel like we're both 40 and it's like also this time of awakening for us. Mm -hmm. and yeah. Collided with your sobriety and, you know, just like having this different relationship to yourself is such a beautiful journey. Yeah. It's the middle of your life. It's the middle of the life check-in and it's almost a diagnosis of like, do I keep forward with some of these habits? Which ones are healthy? Which mm -hmm. ones are not? Yeah. It's been haunting my whole life and I'm tired of it letting me haunt me. Let's fucking get rid of it. Yeah. You yep. know what I mean, I think that's right. your body and your mind and your soul is just tired and it's like, I'm dumping this shit. Yeah. I'm not carrying it with me. I want to have a lightweight moving forward with the next yeah. half of my life. So it could either be a crisis, midlife crisis, or it could be a midlife growth. And I feel like, yeah, we're choosing the yeah. growth here from what I'm hearing. <laughs> Thanks yeah, for absolutely. sharing. <laughs> that's a personal, personal feat that you've, you've just described. Um, and I appreciate that you were open with that. I had a question just for moms that are in these high demand uh, jobs and becoming mm -hmm. a mom. And can you tell us the reality of, you know, it is beautiful, but not roses, right? You got to work a lot. And then when you're home, you still are breastfeeding and you're still there to be there emotionally, physically. And until, I mean, the whole round of motherhood. How can you just describe a snippet of 
what that was like for you going back to work and oh. still having to breastfeed. And I've heard parts of it, but just wanted to share it there for a mom that could be pregnant listening, the goods and the bads and how you managed it, you know, so that she might not be as scared. <laughs> yeah. So man, it's been a journey. It really has been like this amazing, incredibly difficult, incredibly rewarding experience the last six years. My son is six and four months and um, I stayed home. So at the time I was teaching um, uh, at the undergraduate level, um, teaching law classes. So I had the summer off. My son was born in April and I had planned in advance just in case he came around that time to have my classes covered towards to the end of the semester. So I had May, June, July, August, most of August off. So I had like the first four months off with him. That was like so luxurious. Um, I also, you know, uh, I felt I feel really lucky that I got that much time off. Um, but I did go back to work full time um, teaching um, at the end of that four months, and I was still breastfeeding. It was chaos. It was chaos. Um, but I, you know, breastfeeding for me was really important. So what we had to do, I had this like really, um, unique situation <laughs> where we discovered that, um, I had this enzyme in my breast milk that if, if like left out too long or, uh, it basically turns the milk faster. Um, if you don't do something to kill the enzyme. So initially so I would like, what? The milk tastes bad after it's yeah. been on the shelf for a while. Yeah. What? So all summer I built up my stock of breast milk for when I was going back to work. It was beautiful. It was very yeah, you calculated. Open your, your freezer oh like, oh I had a big, like, freezer. It was... <laughs> It was really, really like, it was quite the feat. Um, and then, you know, go back to work, uh, first day. And my, um, wife at the time is like, we, we had these opposite schedules. So like when she was home, I was at work. When I was home, she was at work. So she's home. She's like, he won't drink the milk. Like, I don't, I don't understand. He won't drink it. It's like, what are you talking about? Like he drinks it. We thought it was a bottle. Like he was like refusing to take bottle. And then, uh, I get home, breastfeed him. And the only thing we had done really with bottles before this was I would pump before I would go to bed and then she would give him the bottle within a couple of hours of me pumping. And it was always fine. Well, she tasted the milk <laughs> at one point and she was like, oh my God, it tastes awful. Like, no wonder he's not drinking this. Um, oh my God. And so I did some research and I found out that there's this um, enzyme that I, some people have, it's not super common, that breaks down the milk to where it like tastes bad um, after a few hours, whether it's frozen or not. Um, Can you say the milk that you, did you have to throw out all the milk? I could not use any of that milk I pumped oh before. My God. It was all well, bad. How long, how long is the shelf life for it? 
a couple of hours. It's like no more than like three hours, probably. Damn. Okay. So, so your solution was? <laughs> so we, well, we, we figured out there was one thing we could do to preserve the milk and make that shelf life longer. It was, we had to um, boil the breast milk and then like basically flash, um, not flash, like what is it called when you cool something flash. down really fast? Oh, yeah. We, we had to stick it basically like boiled the milk and then we poured it in a container and stick it in ice water. So it cooled down really fast. Okay. Um, and that killed the enzyme and the milk was still good. And we could, we could freeze it then and keep it. Okay. But so again, for any mom that's ever dealt with this, adding another fucking step to the milk breastfeeding process is a bitch. It is. It's already <laughs> like one more step that you just don't want to do. Yeah. Wow. So you got had a little doozy challenge. So you did that, but I know that you also did a like a switcheroo real time while you were at school. Oh, yeah. I when I was teaching, when I was at work, I would pump two or three times, or probably two, two times a day, something like that. Um, and because it would be still good for two or three hours, um, my wife would come pick up the milk, take it home and do that process of boiling and, and um, cooling off quickly. So the milk was still good. So she would have to come pick up the milk every day to do that when I pumped at work. Quite it a was day. crazy. It was crazy. So that was one of your challenges. Um, did you challenge. do that to your wife? Yeah, I did it that entire year. Um, I think by spring, they were getting farther and farther apart. So I might not have had to do that pickup in the midday. So like that was all fall semester or yeah. the end of 2016. 2017, we might've had longer stretches. Um, yeah. Because he'd started to yeah. eat some. I probably would have said, fuck it. Formula for you. Oh my God. <laughs> No, but but that's awesome that you yes. did that. Yeah. Well, and you were so um so deep rooted in what you wanted, and that you were able to just come up with a solution and do it together, and you were able to have a partnership where you were able to just teamwork and get it done. Yeah, yeah. And the like really f interesting thing I think about um, motherhood, beginning of motherhood, and breastfeeding is like. I have no idea how my body managed to do what it did, like go to work, mm -hmm. teach classes. You know, I was up a lot with this kid. He was not a good sleeper, make milk. Like somehow we are like superheroes and we get through mm -hmm. it. And I don't have a lot of memories of it, but I know that it was, it, I did it. Like there was no option. There's like something that takes over in our biology. Just like, this is what we got to do. We got to do it. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do it. It's moment to moment. I always, they're like, you know, they're like long days and short years. I'm like, bro, it's moment to moment. Yeah. It's yeah. survival. Yeah. Whenever someone would used to tell me that, I'm fine with it now, but whenever someone used to be like, these short days or long days and short years, I want to. Yeah, me too. Hit you in the face. Don't tell me that. I'm sitting like, Enjoy it while it lasts. I was always like, enjoy it right now. You. And I mean, I get it. I yes, I get at, it. We looked at baby pictures and when yeah. they were young and I'm like, oh, damn. I know. You know but those <laughs> things are not always roses, you know? There's some fucked up moments. Yeah. 
But so you were able, so that was your little, that was one of your challenges was breastfeeding. But were you, was, would you say that you had a set schedule so that way you would do your job, you guys had your breastfeeding schedule, and then when you came home, you had a home schedule. And is that what you think made it a day-to-day -day success for you guys to be able to still be working and still be there for your child? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we couldn't have done it without this sort of routine. Mm -hmm. Um because they didn't have to think about what we were doing. It was like, do you yeah. just do, you know what to do and you do it. Um, and, you know, I mean, I couldn't have done it without my wife at the time. Like we, we, like I said in the beginning, like we were such a good team. We worked so well together that like, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have eaten anything that entire first year. Like I, she was the only reason why I ever had any meals. Like I wow. was like, just like, gotta take care of this baby. <laughs> I remember like sucking me dry. And yeah. like, I just like, I just couldn't remember her being like, okay, it's time for you to eat. And she will have cooked this meal and put it in front of my face. And I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. I need to eat. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I, uh, I, I think that like a lot of it was bio biological that like, you know, when they're that young, they, you, you almost don't have a choice, like, but to do what you have to do. But it was also, um, that I, I guess I found some kind of a balance, right. Cause I could be with him half of the time, essentially, I was still working full time, but I had condensed everything into like three days a week or two days a week. I can't remember. Um, but you know, I didn't do work so well. And luckily I was, I was just going to say this is that I think that the term work-life balance is a load of bullshit. Something suffers, you know, like <laughs> I, I, you know, like I, I admit like sometimes I'm a good mom and I'm shitty at my job. And then when I'm a, a bad mom, I'm really good at my job. Like it yeah. just, there's not, it's, it's a, not a balance all the time. And it's like, mm -hmm. it's this idea that we need to have it, you know, everything's all equal and nice and all Perfect. the time. It's just never that way. That's bullshit. That, that, you know, it just is. And that's why we decided to do this podcast because we have these lives of Instagramming everyone's yeah. best moments and all these everyone just looks so perfect. Yeah. yeah. And just expectations, right? Like I remember listening to the podcast after I had my kids and I wanted to cry and they're like, Yeah, you had a bad day. Like all you have to do is this. And I'm like, I don't want to hear that shit. I want to hear that your day fucking sucks. Yeah. And it's okay. And tomorrow's a new day. You know? So yeah. for a moment out there that's having a bad day, tomorrow's a new day, baby. And we all have those bad days where you want to cry and throw in the the towel or the pacifier yeah. or whatever the fuck it is, but it's, it just is. And yeah. sometimes those steps do work and sometimes they don't. Yeah. They yeah. just don't. Yeah. And it's just dealing. But thank you for that. Um, Can we do our three questions? Yeah. Now? Okay. So our three questions. Question one, what's in your purse and what does it say about you? One thing in your purse. Oh my God. Uh, this was the one that I was like, Oh God, what is in my purse? Um, <sighs> <laughs> Can we come back to that and go to the next one? Okay. The okay. second one is what or who inspires you? Oh, right. Um, 
what and who inspires me? So my answer to that is the first thing that came to mind um, is like the only time, not the only time, that's very, <laughs> the time I feel the strongest inspiration is when I feel like love and connection. Um, and mm. that could be like someone that I'm walking by on the street, like says something really kind and genuine or, um, you know, it's the feeling I get with friends, um, people that I am friends with in AA. Um, and that is what keeps me going, honestly. Um, especially in like the world that we live in today, it is like, it makes me, it gives me hope. I think that's what it is, is it gives me hope that like we are all human and we all can still connect and feel love on that very like, um, just fundamental level. Um, because I feel like it's hard to see a lot of times now. Uh, yeah. With your job. <laughs> yeah. With your job and the fact um, that you say that you've seen some shit and oh. that your answer is love and connection. Amazing. I love that. So here's the one that I even dreaded answering for my, for this own podcast. What is a moment as you being a mom that you fucked up with your child? And like, what did you learn from that, from that fuck up moment? Well, I'll just say there's so many of them. Yeah, like, I know. We all have all them. the time. <laughs> when is a moment? Like I fuck up all the time. Um, one that sticks so, out the most. There's one that is really like uh, a little gut wrenching for me. Um, so it was before I stopped drinking and I can't remember what it was I was upset about, um, but I got mad about something. It was just me and my son. He's like, he was probably like five, maybe four or five. And um I got mad about something. Um, I don't know, probably like he didn't put his socks on or like he didn't put his toy away when I asked him to. And I got upset and I probably, I think I yelled at him. I don't know what I said, but what I remember is going into the bathroom, being really upset. And, um, oh, you know, I think what it was is I was trying to get him to brush his teeth. It's always a battle. He will never brush his teeth. Never, never, never will brush his teeth. No so, mom has ever experienced that, by the way. <laughs> God. So he's finally brushing his teeth and he finishes brushing his teeth and he looks at me and he says, remember, mom, you're not supposed to take your anger out on me. Um, and, and it's, it was a conversation that I had had with him because I was trying to, you know, was trying to be better. Um, and he said that to me and I, I like in, I, I just started to like sob inside of me and yeah. I didn't cry, but I said, you're right. You're right, buddy. I'm not, we talked about that. That is not something I'm supposed to do, but it like killed me inside that my four-year-old, five-year-old son is looking at me and saying, don't take your anger out on me. Um, and that sticks with me for, it still sticks with me. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. As I'm, as I've been hearing these stories from other moms and 
you know, saying our own stories. The reason why it sticks with us that I'm kind of realizing it's the cycle of us not wanting to repeat what happened to us. And those are the moments when we bring out what happened to us. So mm -hmm. it's like, fuck, that's the one thing that I did not want to do. Yeah. And it comes out and it just like put, pierces your heart, like an arrow in your heart. And that's how I felt with my moment. I was like, I'm literally doing the moment that I'm healing from. And this is exactly what I didn't want to fucking do. Yeah. So that's why I feel like we feel it, right? We're like, fuck. It's like someone's shooting something at our heart. And so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly how it feels. Yes. Yes. It does. It sucks. Um, well, I mean, something in your purse. You got to have like a. Oh, yeah. Something in my purse. You know, or some kind of thing. I don't know. What, what, what do you it's got just in there? It's hard. Um, so I think what I'll go with is deodorant. I almost always have deodorant in my purse. <laughs> Is it, the, is it the natural one that you got to keep doing or is it like yeah. secret? It is, it's definitely not antiperspirant. It is definitely yeah. the like, not necessarily like super crunchy granola natural kind, but um, I have different versions. Like one, I have Dove versions and I have this one brand called Native, but I keep one in my purse all the time because I mentioned earlier that I exercise kind of like an addict and like I don't take showers. So I just put deodorant on. And so what it says about me is that I'm really you don't eat gross. Like I'm just so gross. I go to CrossFit during yeah. my lunch hour and I put my work clothes back on and go back to work. Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, you do the same thing. I feel like I you know. were like, I'll call her and we have like I sweated know. our vaginas to some drip dry. I know. And then what? she's like, oh, I haven't showered yet. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah. No, you'll think I'm disgusting. Last night I went into, I like had worked out lived my day, didn't shower, got into my pajamas dirty and went into bed. <laughs> I love it. It went to go take a shower and I was like, I probably should shower. Yeah. So I got out of my pajamas and then showered. You put those pajamas back on. Okay. It's that's hilarious. See, I live for showers. Oh my God. It's when I'm like, ah, oh, you know? I, know, I just, I have to. So I know it's a weird thing to not like to shower. Well, you know, the fish smells stinkier when the ocean ain't around, so it's a good thing you did because you know when someone's clean and then yeah. the other person's behind you like lift up the covers and you're like, what, bro? Like, <laughs> do something with that. So at least you put the deodorant on. That's yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just so that not everyone has to smell me. <laughs> yeah. No, we we I'm making some hit songs about stinky stuff, so we're I'm all about the stinky stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Really yeah. fun. Yeah. All right.